Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Oh, I love it when it goes dark in here. It feels so gothic, yes. Um, <laughs> so I can't actually see any of you now, though, so I have to just imagine you're all awake. Um, I can't believe that there is anyone in Gloucester, the whole of Gloucester, that doesn't own at least one of my books. But if you did want to buy my Beowulf one, <laughs> it's new, so you use another one to get signed. Um, this is a very different talk. Every year, when the festival comes around, I try to think to myself, I don't want to bore them. I'm here every year. I need to give them something fresh, something new. So when I was being asked, what do you think you're going to want to talk about at the festival? I said, well, I have this, this series that we're just starting work on. It's going to be called Lost and Found. Well, of course it wasn't. More to be discussed. Um, but it's a, it's a bit of a departure for me because this is, this is how you know me. This is me, of course, testing the bottom of a man just over there in the scriptorium. Uh, it, there was a good historical reason for this involving ale, but um, less said about that, better. There we go, that's my role here. And then this is my usual persona. I'm a medievalist. I have made all these series for TV, but they're usually within my specialist area. So, you know, I've done the Hundred Years' War, I've done Millennium of Monasteries, Anglo-Saxon art, all of them passion areas that I studied or have been teaching, lecturing on ever since. But the BBC thought, well, I think she's a... Um, She's rather enthusiastic about all sorts of things, so maybe she can do things that aren't medieval and manuscript-related. So they took a punt on me a couple of years ago, and they sent me off around the world with the lovely Alistair Souk, who has been here to talk to us as well. And as a result, I got to travel for free without my children whining at me around, <laughs> around amazing places. So I got to go to... That's me on top of the Sagrada Familia in Lisbon, at Baku, uh, St. Petersburg and Amsterdam, where I did a very good impression of a prostitute, which was absolutely you know, cutting-edge TV, it really was. Um, but what they wanted to see was, can she travel? Can this woman in heels and short dresses travel? Oh, yes, I can travel, thank you very much. I can walk up mountains in these boots. And, and yet, I think they were nervous about the sort of the real jungle stuff. So when they came and said, you know, we want to do something to celebrate uh, 1939, the discovery of the Sutton Hoo ship burial, you're clearly the person for that. This is your passion area. 
But we don't want it to just be one program on Sutton Hoo, wonderful as that might be. We want to make it a series. And we've got this idea of these other major discoveries that coincidentally all took place in that summer of 1939. And I thought, this sounds far too good to be true. And in my head, I was thinking, well, Sutton Hoo's going to be brilliant, but the other two, pah. Um, but once we started uh, traveling, it became apparent that these really were major, change, uh, major discoveries that have changed the way we see history and the past. And one of their main concerns was, what are we going to do with this woman in a hot Mexican jungle? Um, she will faint, she is very pasty, the sun will kill her, the mosquitoes will kill her, but I proved I can do it. And so, I'm looking for more wild and wonderful adventures over the next year, hopefully. Um, but, as Phil mentioned, the series is going out now. Episode one and episode two have already been out and they're on iPlayer. Episode three hasn't even aired yet. And I haven't even seen a finished cut. So tonight, I'm going to be sharing sections from that program with you before anyone has seen it. So you better stay awake, okay? Right, let's get the, um, the first clip the intro, this is the pre-title, this is the premise of the whole series. Let me get out of the way. <clears throat> Summer, 1939. A golden age of exploration and archaeology is coming to an end. It was an era that saw adventurers set out to explore the remotest corners of the globe in search of clues to unlock our ancient past. And it was during that last summer of peace as the world stood on the precipice of a war that threatened to end civilization itself that three extraordinary treasures were discovered. Treasures that would radically change our understanding of the origins and diversity of human culture. That made this stone the oldest datable artwork ever found in the Americas and bring us closer to our distant past. You scared me! <laughs> in this series, I'll be on the trail of a cast of remarkable archaeologists, each a product of their era. From a self-taught amateur... Everybody's pressuring him to get to the treasure. ...to a pair of charismatic adventurers. We have come upon the hiding place of a unique group of early American heroic sculpture. And an academic driven by a dark political agenda. But here in writing, mm -hmm. he's acknowledging this figure. They're fascinating tales of intuition, eccentricity and luck. I can't believe it. Another lost colossal head. <laughs> Each show how archaeology was enlisted into the promotion of very different worldviews. And yet each is a powerful reminder of our shared humanity. To me, it is just an astonishing work of art. In this episode, I've come to Mexico. Ho <laughs> ho, not seen before. That's not all I'm showing you, obviously. But um, that pre-title title's run out on all of them. And, um, and it was funny when we were doing the voiceover record because you know me, I'm very enthusiastic. And when I do my first record, I'm like, oh, I missed you, yeah, the highlights of humanity. And we've gone through the whole thing, and at the very end, the sound man said to me, 
You know those adverts that run for movies? On this episode. Where it's very deep, very gravelly, very dramatic. He said, can you try and do it that way? I thought, this is ridiculous. And so I said, all right, well, I'll, I'll pretend. So I put on this very silly voice. And did this very deep version of the intro sequence. And that was the one they used. <laughs> Great. Um, unexpectedly. Um, so I said at the beginning of the talk, I'm doing something different today. I always want to share my new research with you. I always want to share what I'm working on. Interestingly, the next big book I'm working on is all about lost women, so there will be more coming next year on that. But this is something different for me. This is a thing I never really talk about, which is how I make television programs. I'm supposed to be this serious Oxford academic uh, who has lots of intelligent thoughts, but I do actually have a, this job, which is exciting, grueling, takes up lots of my time, fills my life with passion and excitement, but I very rarely get to share it with audiences. So this is something different, and there will be clips playing, and I will be talking about the making of the series and some of the insights we learn in the process. But as I said, the in, really, for making this series was Sutton Hoo. Now, I have studied the Anglo-Saxon period since I was 18, and Sutton Hoo is everything to me. I even, I hope he's not watching this, but my friend, Jim Peters, is collections manager at the British Museum, and I made an extra special effort to be his friend, because I knew he could get me access to the Sutton Hoo treasures. How manipulative is that? Um, but over the years, obviously, I've handled them, I've had encounters with them, but never on this scale, because we were working in collaboration with the British Museum, with the curators there, they did something unheard of, which was to take out the major treasures together for pretty much the first time ever. And some of the pieces I've never managed to get close to, things like these pyramid mounts, which I'll show you in a minute, but this is how they came out. Jim made that trolley, he's very clever. Um, but it's, it came out on this trolley and wheeled down the corridor into this little office. And on this trolley, were the most important artworks, in my opinion, for the whole of the early medieval period. And so there was much rejoicing at various times throughout the filming. This is about what my face looked like for pretty much the whole experience. I, like, I can't describe to you, everyone has their thing, everyone has their passion. It might be a fast car or a nice new handbag or some new shoes. This is my thing. There's just nothing that gets me more excited than seeing these objects in the flesh. And that that I'm sitting behind there is the Sutton Hoo whetstone. Now, it didn't actually feature in the documentary at all, sadly, because there was simply too much to include. But the reason I wanted to show it to you today is because it's an, it's an incredibly rare Anglo-Saxon find. It's made of stone. On the whole, the Anglo-Saxons didn't work in stone. They used wood, they used um, uh, perishable things, bone, but this is carved into stone. And it's very fragile. This knop you can see at the top that's gone green, uh, it, it's held in place there, but it is, if, if it gets handled too much, there's a real danger it will fall apart. So the curators just don't get it out of the case. And yet, they did and hence the excited face. But what was so special about being so close to this object? I have looked at it, gazed upon it through glass for 20 years. I have read books, seen photographs, high quality, high resolution images of this thing. Nothing compares to holding it and being with it in the flesh. 
It, no amount of photos can do that. But it is such a stunning object. When, you, when I was turning it in my hands, a thing I'd always known that I'd read about in various articles was that each of the faces are different, subtly different, and that what they could be showing, the foreheads at the top and the foreheads at the bottom, is in fact a family tree of the Wuffingas dynasty going back to the god Odin. But until I held it, held it, turned it, lifted it in the light, got the shadow to hit it in a certain way, I never appreciated how unique each of those faces are. They are characters that just spring out from 1,300 years ago in my hands. It was amazing. So I think you can kind of give me that photo, really. Um, lots of other revelations from handling these things up close. For example, some of the overlooked items. This is the sword, and never in my wildest dreams did I think they would get the sword out of display. You can see how corroded it is. It's in bits, and even the curator is terrified of moving it. And yet they got the whole sword out with all the fittings, the handle, and very surprisingly, these buttons. Now, again, when I talk about the Sutton Hill treasures, I tend to talk about big hits like these. The shoulder clasps, the gold buckle, they are stunning, they are sublime, they are complex. But I've never really paid enough attention to the small bits, the incidental bits. These buttons are just that, buttons. But look at the artistic skill that has been lavished on these. Now, because they're out of the glass, because I could get close to them, I could take this photo of them, and I could turn them in my hands. And when I turn them in my hands, I notice something I've never seen before. Can you see around the rim that there are tiny baguette garnets cut and set like a rope pattern around the edge? And they are individually set, so as you turn the buckle, they glimmer in a circle. And I'd never seen that, because when you go to a gallery, they're exhibited like that. So you never see the side. It was that experience. It's such a small thing, but it's a thing that, that makes me think, God, if you would lavish this attention on a button, what sort of a culture is this? That they can you know, give that sort of attention to something so small. Um, now, I want to show you, oh yeah, this was a moment. There's my long-suffering friend Jim in the background. He's very used to this by now. And he allowed me this moment which is to stand next to the helmet. Now, the helmet can't come out. It is, it's it's um, welded to that post that you can see because the fragments are, uh, they are held in place. If you moved them, it would fall apart. And so he couldn't have it out. But he said, well, in that case, I'll take you to it. And if you, has anyone visited the BM's collection to see these in situ? Can't really see any hands. I'm hearing yeses. Thank you, I see a wave, well done. Um, it's all glass, isn't it? It's a big glass case, and it's all sealed in. Well, I got to climb into that case. I had to shimmy alongside the shield, try not to hit the scepter, and then climb round and stand next to the helmet. And I got to look inside it, under it. Um, there was much of this face in that time. And you can see Jim going, don't you touch it! Don't touch it! But I did get that moment, so it was amazing. Now, I want to show another clip, but I just want to say, um, Again, I've spent 20 odd years thinking about the Sutton Hill burial, thinking about its art, its implication, you know, all of it, the discovery of it. But the thing that most of us scholars tend to forget, because it's not there anymore, is that this was a ship, a huge 
ship. We get super excited about the helmet, the, the sword, the little bits inside, but the ship is enormous. It would be like nowadays putting a super yacht in the ground and being buried in it. Um, this is, and this is something that really came through in the making of the program. The other thing that came through was that I got my hands on Basil Brown's diaries. And I'm going to show a clip of quite what we learned about the man from his diaries. Let's go. Basil quickly realised that this ship was something extraordinary. Here at the British Museum, his diaries capture his sheer excitement. The ship was in a slanted position in the ground, and as Basil kept working away with small tools and his bare hands wherever possible, the ship was widening as it was getting deeper. On Monday, May the 22nd, he writes, the work is getting interesting. I am continuing the slow excavation work of the ship itself, carefully creeping along rivet by rivet. It is now evident, however, that we are up against a far larger thing than anyone suspected. And on Friday, 2nd of June, he declares, certainly now we have beaten the record for ships found in burial mounds in the British Isles. And one might put either Snape or the Isle of Man ships inside this easily. The stakes are clearly getting higher. And by the end of June, with Basil working from 5 a.m. until late every day, Thousands of iron rivets revealed a ship the size of which had never been seen before in Britain. 27 metres long and around 5 metres wide. A ship of this size, he mused, must have been that of a king or a person of very great importance. And it is the find of a lifetime. But in a heart-stopping moment, Basil found evidence of medieval grave robbers, a deep pit with broken pottery at the bottom. Could this mean that he was closing in on yet another burial chamber looted of its treasures? So these robbers dug in the centre of the mound, because that's where the juicy bit should be. Right. Uh, but by that time, the end of the mound had been ploughed away, mainly by medieval farmers. So, by sheer luck, when the would-be robbers dug down from what they believed was the central point, they just missed the burial chamber. How much longer had the robbers to have kept digging to have found what was in Mandwell? Well, we can follow Basil. He found a pit, and at the bottom was a gin bottle. That's a, a well, Bellamine flask. And, they, and that was within a few feet of the chamber. But I love this idea yeah. that if those trench robbers hadn't have stopped for a gin, they might have got the treasures. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah there you go. <laughs> That's one of my favourite bits. Um, a couple of things. When I was reading from the diary, it was really exciting, and I was reading as I was uh, as we were going you know, straight to the camera, and I was I was just going through, going, "Oh my goodness, read this! Oh my goodness!" And we were just sort of shooting it as we were reading through. And so I was getting very excited. And my mum was watching this film and she phoned me up halfway through and she went, can you just calm down? I'm exhausted. 
<laughs> because it was sort of fever pitch excitement on reading those diary entries. And there's another insight into the glorious world of making documentaries for BBC Four, which is that scene that you saw, the huge ship drawn on the wall. That was um, an idea that my director had had. We'd worked a super long day. We'd been up filming into, to late into the evening, and we were exhausted. And he said, listen, we're going to get up really early. And we're like, oh, no. And we're going to go to this shed. Oh, no. And we're going to see a picture of a boat. Oh, that's rubbish. I don't want to go. I went very kind of teenage boy about the whole thing. Um, and then we turned up, and it was an absolute revelation, because that is the ship drawn to scale on the wall of this massive um, warehouse where they were going to reconstruct it. And it wasn't till I saw it like that, in, the, in that space, that I had any sense of what these dimensions meant. I'd read these dimensions a hundred times. You know, this is a huge ship. I can visualize a huge ship. It wasn't until I walked the length of that picture that I thought, this is an enormous ship. So it's moments like that that give these, these wonderful little kind of enlightening um, events for me as an academic kind of working in, in television. Um, other things that happened, I told you there'd be behind the scenes stuff. Uh, you can see that spike there. That's the spike you can see behind Professor Martin Carver as he's talking about the gin bottle in that clip. Martin was actually a colleague of mine when I worked at York, and when I got my first post at York, I couldn't believe I was gonna be a colleague of the Martin Carver. The, the, you, for me, he was Mr. Sutton Who. And then I was interviewing him on television, going, ha ha, I'm making a program about Sutton Who. <laughs> but he was wonderful, and we spent a long time talking. And we got up to start filming on the mound at about two o'clock in the afternoon, um, and you know, the public started to go out. And then we were going to do this long interview. We were there for five hours. And at the start, when the last member of the public left, this cat appeared. And this cat was driving the cameraman and the director bonkers, because every shot he was sort of sidling up and rubbing on my leg. I was awful, because all I wanted to do was play with the cat. I go, Nina, Nina, you're supposed to be presenting. No, I must play with the cat. Um, and this cat, it just caused havoc for five hours. And then it vanished. And this is on the Great Mound at dusk with no one around. And if anyone's visited the Sutton Hoo site, it is a weird, eerie, strange place. It's the only way I can describe it. It is eerie. And this cat just vanished, poof, disappeared. And we never knew where it came from. But it, it, it's not near any houses. So I called it Radwald and said it's the king coming back to have a chat with us, obviously. Um, and we had some nice times <laughs> with the replicas. I can't, someone was watching the program and was tweeting me while, I was, while it was going out going, I can't believe you didn't put the helmet on. Well, I did. Like this. Of course I put the helmet on. Of course I did. So, um, and, but again, you know, handling these reconstructions, look at the detail. I mean, even just looking at it from this auditorium, that is extraordinary work. And when you look at the husk of what it is now, this sort of very eroded, corroded piece of fragments, a bit of jigsaw puzzle of metal, it doesn't look like this. But this has been reconstructed authentically, and it gives you, again, all these new insights. I never had a concept of how much it weighed until I put it on my head. It weighs a ton. I couldn't imagine wearing that for more than half an hour. It would give you neck strain. Um, handling the weapons, seeing how the toggles worked, all these things that, again, I've just never appreciated. But one thing I have always appreciated, and one thing that I think will come out 
um, in the next clip is the artistry. So let's go with the second clip, because I'm going to run out of time. I know I am. Such rare gems suggested they'd hit the burial place of an Anglo-Saxon warrior king. These extraordinary identical pyramids were the first real treasures to come out of the burial mound at Sutton Hoo. And what an exquisite pair they are. They are made of solid gold. And all over the surface, you could see these finely worked garnets set into gold cells. This is known as cloisonne. Behind each of these garnets, there is a stamped gold foil, absolutely paper thin, almost microscopic. And what this means is that garnet, which is often quite a flat, dull gemstone, actually glimmers and shines. As the light goes through the gem, it bounces off the gold backplate and sparkles back out. This was evidence of a society developed enough to include highly skilled, virtuosic craftspeople. Just look at the way they cut the edge and shoulder garnets as prisms, creating an effect that positively glows. That is showing off. That is saying, I know I am the best at what I do and I'm going to display it in my work. But what were these things used for? Well, we don't find out until we turn them over, because here at the back, you can see a gold bar and a space behind where a leather strap would have been pulled through. And this would have enabled it to sit on the scabbard of a sword and act like a toggle being moved up and down in order to hold the sword in place. The extraordinary detail that has been lavished on something as incidental as a toggle shows quite how powerful and influential the person that wore this thing must have been. I have to say, I think he also had exceptionally good taste. He certainly did. Um, <laughs> that, that, I was just glued to that for a second there because it's the first time I've seen it on a big screen. And I can't tell you the excitement when we put those pyramid mounts on the turntable lit them from the side, and none of us knew the prisms were going to glow. It's never been done before. None of us knew it was going to happen. And the curator of the BM was there. We were all together, and we all looked through the lens and went, oh my goodness, <laughs> look at that. And we thought it might be an accident, so we kept shooting it again and again to see if they'd ping again, if they'd zing when the light hit it. And they did. And, and it's so magical to see that on the screen. So, yeah, I'm so lucky to do the job I do because yeah, I enjoy it so much, but I also am learning and hopefully sharing that, what I learn with you um, through the screen. So, Sutton Who was an extraordinary experience. I have to speed up a little bit now because I've got two more episodes to get through. But um, the Lion Man one, was, I knew from the start, was going to be difficult. For, for, when we have Sutton Hoo, we have a collection of objects to look at, a story to tell. The story of Basil Brown and Edith Pretty is a wonderful, hopeful, exciting adventure. With the Lion Man, it, the whole premise is different. This is Nazi-sponsored archaeology. SS, members of the SS involved in these discoveries and these digs. Secretism, collusion, and 
through all of it, this complicated, almost unbelievable story of this artwork that we didn't even, I didn't even realize when we began filming quite how old it was. I learned so much making this program, and I came away changed in how I felt about human existence. We think of history as, if you're going back to the Romans, it feels like a very, very long time ago, a couple of thousand years. The Lion Man was made in 40,000 years ago. 40,000 years ago. And as I kept saying throughout the program, what's so extraordinary is if this complete and fully realized artwork that is creative, that puts a, something impossible into, into reality, a man and a lion conflated. If there are artists capable of making something that advanced, then it suggests earlier artists came even before that, that there might be another few thousand years of practice and prototypes that we're going to discover. It, it really was an extraordinary experience. Um, <laughs> I've got a couple of things I want to show you, but um, this is me in Norway. Now, this is very exciting, because BBC4, we don't get big budgets, we don't have an awful lot of money to work with, but we'd managed to kind of be very careful and clever about how we'd arranged the finances. And my director, Ben, just sent me an email. I knew I was going to go to Hollerfels, and I knew I was going to go to the Swabian Jura in Germany, and I was really excited about that. And he just said, listen, I'm trying to work out the story, and we've got to tell the story of shamanism. Do you fancy going to Norway? <laughs> yes. And so commenced the most bizarre 24 hours of my life. It really was the most bizarre 24 hours of my life. We went up to the Arctic tundra, and this was at the point when the sun wasn't setting. So it was eternal daytime. My head was turned upside down by this concept of no night. And we just filmed very briefly, but it was spending time with this gentleman, and uh, now he is a professor of law, and when I was reading his profile, I was like, professor of law, um, scholar of the ancient tradition of the Sami. Uh, he's going to be a very um, balanced and reasoned person. He turns up in a pointy hat, full dress, and then turns into a mosquito in front of me through his yoiking. And, and it just got slightly weirder from then on. Do we have the next clip with and uh, yoiking at me? in this very confined space, I might add. <laughs> we can absolutely work with this, my friends, because what I was going to go on to say was how beautiful the smaller works of art are. Please take away the clip. Found just eight years before the discovery of the Lion Man. This is one of the many treasures uncovered by Gustav Rieck in the Vogelherd cave. This is, quite simply, the first known depiction of a horse in human history. This jewel-like sculpture isn't just breathtakingly beautiful. It also displays the creative skill of its maker. Because although it's lost its legs, the modelling of the muscles indicate that this is a horse in motion. It's got this inherent energy and dynamism to it. Then there's the minutely worked details, the backward pointing ears, the 
nostrils and mouth, even individual hairs carved in on the mane that runs right across the top of the head. It really does feel to me like it could just bolt out of the case. This tiny horse is a revelation to me. It rivals the great equestrian statues of ancient Greece and Rome. And yet, it's among our first attempts to try and capture the world around us. It revolutionises our understanding of the development of art. We're used to thinking about a sort of evolution from simple, primitive art through to the naturalism of the classical world and onto the beauty of the Renaissance. But this horse turns all that on its head because it seems that we were brilliant artists from the very beginning. Great. Um, that horse really did uh, take my breath away because I don't know, could you see, this is something I've wanted to ask, can you see how the limbs are actually spread as if the horse is about to run? It, it, to me, it really did look dynamic, like it was me. And the ears pointing back, they're quite hard to see again. But this idea that it's bolting, it's racing forward, all of that comes through in this piece this big. And one of the things that really was surprising, um, Lion Man is huge in comparison. Lion Man is a real giant of Ice Age art. The pieces I was looking at, most of them, and we featured quite a few in the, in the documentary, were tiny. And um, I was working with Wolf, he's the gentleman who reconstructed Lion Man. He can work up these little pieces now, he's developed the skills. But what was so extraordinary of sitting with him and working with him was he would take a piece of ivory or tusk or bone and using flints, cut very, very, very sharp, he could whittle these things up. But what I didn't appreciate, he explained it to me, Flint was such a precious commodity in, um, in the Ice Age, and the individuals who, or individual who made Lion Man would have had to have sent away for, a, for Flint to be delivered to him or her because it wasn't indigenous to that area. It came from a good 60, 70 miles away from the Swabian Jura. But once they, they got this flint, it had to be cut into tiny shards because Wolf was explaining to me the composition of flint means that it can be cut on an almost molecular level, which makes it one of the sharpest things, sharper than a metal knife in order to work with. And I found that astonishing. But it's also quite dangerous because you end up with a sharp edge on one side and a sharp edge on the other. And I watched him for hours whittling away at the, the, this ivory, and it, it really hurts the hand. It's labor-intensive, it's, it's hard work. But what I find so extraordinary is some of the detail that comes through in these little pieces. Just look at this mammoth. I mean, again, I kept having to say to myself, humans were living alongside woolly mammoths. And that's just such a basic thing. <laughs> but it, it really was dawning on me as I was with the ivory pieces. This is one of those mammoths, but the reason I love it, from the side you can see its dimensions, it's the frontal view I love. Can you see how the tusk, uh, the trunk curves downwards and swings ever so slightly to the side, as if it's sort of loping along? 
such a small detail and yet gives it so much movement. And some of the other pieces, um, I promised one of the diving birds earlier, but this, this piece is, is beautiful. It's tiny, about the size of my thumb, but it shows the dynamism. It's not a static bird. The thing that kept going through my head as I was looking at these Ice Age artworks is it's one thing to record the world around you, to say, this is a horse, this is a mammoth, but these creatures are all being shown in motion. So the bird is diving through the water. The mammoth is swinging its tusk. The lion man has its shoulders ready to pounce. These are so advanced. They're not just capturing reality. They're trying to tell you something more. They're trying to show you the movement and the emotion of these things. And then, of course, the wonderful figurine from Holofels. Um, <laughs> they sold replicas of this in the gift shop. And I was saying, this is going to become my new totem. I'm going to wear it all the time, hang it around my neck. And my sound guy that was with me went, do you think anyone will get it? Or will they just think you're wearing a really strange figurine around your neck? Um, and so I decided against it. But to think that the oldest representation of, a, of humankind was this woman, that this is the earliest depiction of the human form, and what an imagined and ex exceptional piece it is. It's not a, a literal rendering of a human form. Well, it might be, but I haven't met anyone with quite these dimensions. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> instead, there is a certain degree of symbolic enhancement, I hope. Um, the parts of the female that are significant, that are the, plate, the site of life, new life, reproduction, they are emphasized. And so, again, it's not just capturing the thing, the object. It's extrapolating something more out of these things, something that is, is, is implied to be significant, powerful, potent, important. And I find all of that absolutely magical. There was one problem. Uh, you might be able to see what the problem is here. They were in these cases, and they are tiny. And the, the complexity of filming these things, it would take us a good hour to set up a shot, just because you had to get my big old head and the tiny thing in focus at the same time. And my head moves around a lot, it does lots of silly faces, and so the poor cameraman had such a difficult time, and this happened quite often. Uh, <laughs> Now, I think working with Wolf was one of the most exciting aspects of this project because you can see us there, right opposite the Stardall Cave entrance. This is where the Lion Man was discovered. And talking to Wolf, he said, you know, if I was the craftsperson that made the Lion Man, this is where I'd sit. The sun is right, we've got just enough shelter, shade, I would have sat here on this rock. And there was this moment where I sort of thought, goodness, 40,000 years ago, maybe the creator of the Lion Man did sit here. And isn't that just collapsing time, just before your eyes? But I did love the reconstruction. The first time ever that he, the he, I'm calling him him, that the Lion Man figurine had returned to Stardall Cave since it was excavated in 39. And we took him in a shoebox in the van. And it was very lovely when he came out. But we discovered something. So being together, this is, has never been seen before, and I've never shown it to anybody. So be, tell me what you think. But while I was sitting with Wolf, we talked a lot. And we talked about how in these caves, there were, there's evidence of musical instruments, soundscapes. 
and that in these sort of shamanistic environments, I mean, I know it just from studying Gothic cathedrals. Why does a Gothic cathedral ritual work? Because it's stained glass light, it's incense, it's chanting, it's uh, the way that light and dark play, it's symbols, it's art, and they all collectively put you into a sense that could be spiritual or trance-like. The shamanistic tradition wanted to stimulate the senses in a similar sort of way. So we were talking about sound, and obviously these early, early flutes were found in these caves as well. So the birth of art and the birth of music seems to be simultaneous in this environment. But we didn't realize this until, well, I shouldn't say I just started playing with the, with the lion band, but I started playing with the lion man. And this is what we found. So Wolf filmed that as it was happening. He spent 400 hours carving that thing. And it, you know, me with my child brain starts whacking it with a stone. Um, <laughs> this is fine, isn't it? Um, but as we did that, there was this sense that, my god, the thing's got acoustics. Of course it has acoustics. It's made from a, a tusk which has a core. And as the core comes out, it leaves him hollow. But it means there's different depth of the ivory as you go down, which gives it this tonality. And why couldn't it have functioned in this sort of sensory way of making sounds as well? So that was a hugely exciting thing. He got very excited too, and didn't mind me whacking his, his, um, his 400 hours worth of work. But let me just finish talking about Lion Man with you, with this clip, which if you've seen the series, this is where I get very scared, indeed. The wolf has been following me uh, for, uh, for a long, long time. I was uh, 17 years when I met my wolf, and my father was a reindeer herder, and he was on the tundra. And then uh, in the wolf um, community, uh, there would be packs, and then would be lone wolves. So it was a pack that attacked a lone wolf outside the love or the tent and something unheard happened. The, the lone wolf came into the tent to, to seek protection from the pack. Your because, tent came into Yeah, the, to, to my father's tent. Suddenly my father said to me that, your eyes is the wolf's eyes. And I heard a voice saying that, because you protected me, I chose you to be my father. And then the wolf maybe was uh, lurking there in, in the corners of my existence and came and introduced uh, himself. And uh, so we are very uh, good companions from way back in time. Can we hear a bit of the wolf, you think? Sure. Yeah. I wish I'd never asked. <laughs> Oh, no, 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 no,
Um, now, I can't tell you how surreal that situation was. For a start, Ander is blocking the only exit. So <laughs> the rest of our stuff in this tiny little, I say, reconstructed lava where we, you know, there's a big fire in the middle. And what was so extraordinary, I mean, I, I think Yoiking is sublime. And we did a whole sequence with him yoiking out over the landscape, over the Arctic tundra. And, and it is just this incredibly transformative process. What scared me, and I don't know if you can see it here, in that light, in the firelight, where I was sitting, his face actually started to change shape. So as he made those sounds, as he howled, as he kind of contorted his face, I, it was almost as if he was becoming a wolf in front of me. And that was scary, but exceptional, extraordinary. I have also had many, many comments from people who've watched this in their living room with their pets. And the pets utterly freak out. So he's obviously got it right. He obviously sounds like a wolf. Um, anyway, he's, he was such a wonderful person. And spending time with him, sort of tr remembering that there is the Sami people, that these are an indigenous people of Europe that go back tens of thousands of years that we still have access, perhaps, to these last remnants of an earlier approach to, to the world. It's so worth finding out about, and that, again, it was a revelation for me. Now, I haven't got long, but I promised you Mexico, didn't I? Mexico, the first one we actually filmed, because we couldn't go in the summer, it would have simply been impossible, so we went in the spring, and do you like my look, ladies and gentlemen? Oh, it's very, very posh. That is not posh. That is a, uh, a scarf I bought um, in a panic buy from Sainsbury's on the way to the airport, which I ripped up in the back of the car and turned into strips because I, it was so hot, my head was just perspiring constantly. So I've just covered myself in this shawl in an attempt to kind of soak up the perspiration. It's very charming, very charming. There were lots of wonderfully charming aspects. Now, I will say, as we were leaving for Mexico, the BBC sent me the health and safety form. Now, usually, our health and safety forms, I give it a good route through, you know, nothing, not going to fall over at Sutton Who, are you? No, I'll be, I won't fall over. The health and safety form for Mexico ran to 48 pages. And it included things like, if a crocodile runs at you, run faster in a straight line away from it. And I, I sort of waved this at my husband, going, oh, I'm off to Mexico, don't worry about me, I'll be fine. And he sat and read through this whole document. And by the end of reading, he was like, you're not going to Mexico. 
you are not going to Mexico. But um, we took lots of extra precautions. We had a security guard with us, which we've never had before for the whole of the duration. We never drove after dark. Uh, there were lots of things we had to be aware of, one of them being ticks. Now, this is the wonderful fashion solution my team came up with in order to protect themselves from ticks, which was to strap lots of parcel wrap around the, the sort of bits of their clothing. But Madam here couldn't do that because Madam had to appear on camera. So instead, they would cover me from top to toe in intensive DEET, which not only stinks, it is exceptionally greasy, and everything sticks to it. So after about an hour of filming in a, a hot, sweaty jungle in a jumpsuit, with DEET all over me, I came out with half the forest attached to me, <laughs> sort of creatures and bits of bracken and bits of... And it was really, really uncomfortable. The first day we got out there, the temperatures were way up in the 40s and humidity was intense. We were walking through jungle conditions and we had to use, um, you know, we had to hack our way through. And there were so many concerns going through my head about what could bite me, what could sting me, what spider's that, that one looks scary, all these things. Um, but luckily, if I'd have had to have done that for a full two weeks, I think it would have polished me off. But the temperatures peaked on the second day. And by the end of the second day, I was done. I wanted to get on a plane and get back home but the temperature changed. It became slightly cooler, slightly more bearable, and we moved our way south, and we went along the seafront, and it became a bit easier. But that, those were the two hardest filming days I have ever experienced. Um, we had lots of exciting moments. We found strange things. Obviously, the cameraman very sensibly picked them all up. There's a nice, strange, unusual creature. I'm just going to pick it up and show it to Nina, who goes, ooh. Uh, so that's a very poisonous frog, brilliant. Um, this is uh, the sorts of depth of, um, of forest uh, growth that we were having to deal with regularly. Lots of tripping up, lots of getting caught on things. A real concern for me was the food. <laughs> they have exceptionally hot chili with everything. So this is a scenario where I was in my hotel room. I'd been a bit ill the day before, had a bit of a tummy upset. So I decided to stay in my room, and my fixer, Maria, there, said, I will get you room service sent up. And she said, you can eat all these things, but don't eat that. Do not eat it. So I ate it. And it was the spiciest thing I have ever eaten in my life. I thought my cheeks were going to just implode with the spice. So the food was a hazard. But what we discovered while we were out there was um, something that I never thought I would be, in my life, be able to experience. It's the sort of thing as a child who loves history and archaeology, you dream about these Indiana Jones moments. And that's where the title eventually, Raiders of the Lost Past, came from, because it was so completely like having an Indiana Jones moment. I was walking through jungles. I was discovering a lost civilization. And it was amazing. Can we play the clip? Retracing their journey, even today, it's a remote place for me to get to, never mind 80 years ago. So it's easy to imagine their delight when they quickly located a large stone crown projecting from the soil. The legend appeared to be true. 
what they uncovered was unlike anything they'd seen before. A single colossal stone head buried deep in the ground. The Sterlings didn't know it yet, but they'd taken the first step in discovering the lost civilization of the Olmec. And here he is, a six-foot-high, eight-tonne colossal head carved from a single boulder of volcanic basalt rock. Nothing like this had ever been found in the Americas before. The nearest equivalent would be the monumental figures of ancient Egypt. But when the Sterlings excavated the head, there was no torso attached. Instead, it was sat on a foundation of unworked stone, which suggests that from its very inception, it was intended as an intimidating, powerful portrait. <gasps> First views, everybody. Oh, um, I know we're going to overrun slightly, but I have one more clip which I would like to show you. Would you like... Are you patient enough to stay and watch it? Okay, in that case, I will finish up. But some of the finds from Mexico, um, it pushed me to even my limits of enthusiasm. There aren't words to describe what I was looking at. And as the story unfolded of the date being pushed back and back and back and back until you're looking at something that is thousands of years earlier than they were originally thought to be, it, again, it took me on this, this extraordinary kind of mind-altering journey. But these particular sets uh, were extraordinary. They are a pair of panthers um, opposite a pair of men, and they're all poised, growling at each other. And what I found so extraordinary, look at the naturalism, the carving on that face, the way that the jewelry is depicted, the ropes on the headband. Again, none of this made this into the program, so I'm sharing it with you. That is one type of art, a sort of highly realistic, naturalistic representation of the human form. But look at what it's opposite. Carved around the same time, made to be together, made to be arranged as a group. That is abstract. That is symbolic. It's a panther, but it's been reduced, a leopard rather, but it's been reduced to its basic elements, the eyes, the growl. And to have these two types of art next to each other, I mean, that is positively modern. It is an extraordinary insight into what our artistic tastes were like on the other side of the ocean, evolving at the time when ancient Egypt is, is emerging and ancient Greece. It's extraordinary. And I think the repercussions of these discoveries still haven't spread out. People still don't know enough about the Olmec. They know about the Mayans, they know about the Aztecs. But the Olmecs are the originators. And some of the things that we found, again, I can't have a sensible photo taken, can I? It just, <laughs> just beggars belief. Another stupid face. Anyway, um, this is me and Puck. Puck is the um, archaeologist who discovered these heads. Now, I'm not going to tell you anymore because on Wednesday you will find out why these are so extraordinary. But in another bit of television magic, We'd said, we want to we film the heads from El Manati. We want to see the wooden heads that were discovered. Can, and there are 18 of them, I believe. 
And they're all in different collections, they're all in different places. They're incredibly fragile because, of course, they're wood, thousands of years old wood. That, um, and so they don't get taken out of storage very often. But for us, they said, we will get all of them out for you. And in this magical moment, we walked into this tiny little local museum, and there were just piles of boxes, boxes after boxes. And as each one opened up, there was another 3,000-year-old head inside, and another one, and another one. And a little bit like looking at that Sutton Hoof scepter where every head looks different. These are individuals. These are characters. It, it's just such an honor sometimes when these moments happen that it's not a wonder I'm that happy and surprised. Okay, I believe we have the last clip. So this is going to be it. This is exciting. The basalt rock from which the sculptures were carved isn't found anywhere near the swamplands of La Venta. But 90 miles away, in the foothills of the Tuxla Mountains, and that's where I'm going next. Without any beasts of burden or functional wheels, we can only imagine how difficult it was for the Olmecs to move giant boulders through dense jungle and swampland. The Sterlings never made it here, but I'm sure they would have been thrilled to know that archaeologist Dr. Alfredo Delgado has uncovered the long-lost sculpture workshops of the Olmecs. El basalto como un recurso suntuario en medio de pantanos. No hay piedras. Entonces, eso recurso escaso y por lo tanto es valioso. Seis meses del año está inundado. Ahorita como es tiempo de sequía. Evidence of large-scale Olmec industry is everywhere. Mira, tenemos un área de desecho de talla. Son varios, este, varios amontonamientos. Tenemos acá las lascas de cuando estaban tallando los monumentos. Hay cuatro áreas de talleres en este sitio. So as they're sculpting the monuments, these are the big fragments sí. that are chopping off. Así es. Amazing. So old. <laughs> wow. Mira, aquí tenemos uno de los monumentos en proceso. It's amazing. Y aquí tenemos una estela. Oh, I can see the figure. It's beautiful, so naturalistic. But Alfredo's latest discovery, here amongst these sweltering rocky outcrops, is an archaeological first. Mira, esta es una pieza en proceso, es una cabeza colosal. Aquí está la base. Oh! Y acá están labrando apenas lo que sería el casco. So it could have, so, yeah, I mean, the size, the shape, could be another colossal head. Es la primera que tenemos in situ. Ajá. Bueno, son la base de la cabeza colosal, la técnica de martillado y cómo están delineando el casco. La cara todavía no está labrada. Apenas están bajando algunas capas para... Están esbozando la cabeza, hacer algunos elementos como el casco y, y la orejera. Wow. 
I can't believe it. It's, it is a head. It's amazing. Another lost colossal head. <laughs> I found another lost colossal head. It was amazing. It, that was one of the most incredible days. We had to drive for miles off a proper road, just on dirt tracks, and it was getting more and more scary and remote. And then there was this abandoned ranch, and it looked like something out of a Western film, you know, all the, the gate creaking and everything like looking desolate. And we had to kind of climb around the back of this ranch through the, the very, very difficult um, shrubbery. And, yeah, Alfredo was saying to me, just a bit further, just a bit further, and we just kept going and going. And everywhere we looked, nobody had obviously looked around this side, but on every side, we can't even get it across there, were finds. That figure just lying there, discarded bits, little practice pieces, it was, it was extraordinary. It was like walking through a mason's yard now. Just all this stuff that it's been frozen in time for a couple of millennia. And then we found the side of the head. And as he was telling me, I, he was trying to sort of say, I think this is really important. And it just hit me. You saw that moment where I just went like that. Oh, my God. I've just suddenly realized what you've shown me. And it, it was amazing. <laughs> so there is a lot more to come on Wednesday. And I've given you a little taster. They're up on the iPlayer, but do tune in on Wednesday. And thank you. This has been such a pleasure for me. I never get to talk about these sorts of things. but. It's exciting work, and I'm so happy that you came along and let me share it with you tonight. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Make it. Well, <laughs> um, yes. Nina will take a few questions if there are questions. She's asking if questions. We can see. Oh, no. <laughs> Christy's straight in. Hands up here. Where's the. Is it possible to get the lights up maybe a little bit more? Oh, they do, don't they, Brian? They do. They take a while to come up. Put a shilling in the meter. <laughs> the hamster wheel's going. <coughs> I can see you all. Yes, please. Hello. Hello. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we've seen developments throughout the world on different continents. South America, North America, Africa has the bow and arrow, the chariot. But when I see Sutton Hoo and the clasp, mm. I also see the tiles in the Alhambra. Mm. I also see uh, tea trays in, in North Africa. Yeah. Is this a coincidence or do you think there's a shared migratory design and technique? Do you think this knowledge is shared through travel, or is it just a coincidence? Uh, it is an excellent question, and one that I ponder on constantly. I often have students who will hand me in a dissertation that's a bit left of field, and halfway through they'll sort of say, you know, do you think that the, um, the two figures on the Sutton Hoo class actually originate in Mexico? I'll sort of say, well, no, because there wasn't contact at that side, but it's a good suggestion. Um, with this, though, with the parallels you're suggesting, I think you're absolutely right. And in fact, the next series that's starting on October the 7th, Handmade in Bolton, which sounds funny, but it's absolutely brilliant. It's Valdemar Januszczak and Sean Greenhalgh. He came to Gloucester and spoke for us about his forgeries, how he got caught and convicted for forging artworks. And he has had a look at 
the Sutton pieces. He thinks the manufacturer is Byzantine, stylistically. And he thinks that we need to think again about this idea of them being made here. Perhaps they're being made and imported here. I'm not sure. I think that they're probably coming out of, of Anglo-Saxon workshops. That's my opinion. But, but there is... We, totally don't give credit to the people of the past for having an imagination and moving around. They traveled and crossed vast distances. That's why the Silk Road exists. The people were traveling the length and breadth of the known world and interacting with each other and sharing things and looking at other people's get up and saying, hey, you look cool, man. Where's, can I have one of those cufflinks? And, and you know, sort of <laughs> carrying on, the taking the thing back. And then when they get it back to home, showing it to other people and them saying, oh, I'd like one similar, but a little bit with a little sort of twist. And so this is human interaction. This is creative interaction. We are not static. We can't say this is exactly what Anglo-Saxon art looks like any more than we could say this is exactly what English art looks like now and point at one artist or one creative. So absolutely. And one of the, the sort of things that came through, my husband was funny when he was watching Sutton Hoo with me, the Sutton Hoo program. Because there's a few things I say in there, particularly when I do the shoulder class, where I talk about the garnets coming from Sri Lanka, the gold having to be imported, and this idea that even the craftspeople could have been itinerant, they could be moved in, uh, they could be from elsewhere. And the whole premise in that next section where I talk about who are the Anglo-Saxons is that they are from everywhere. And this idea of people moving in and out of this island is age-old. And so that is coming through. And, and in fact, it comes through, I think, in Lion Man as well, that, that people move. We have the ability to move ourselves around, and we do. And art moves with them. Great question, though, Christy. Thank you. Who else would like to ask me a question? I know you all want to go home now, don't you? <laughs> you will be frightfully patient. Oh, look. Go, there's one more there, please. <laughs> I, I was very interested in the, uh, the lion man and the, uh, the carving of the, uh, the mammoth. When I was watching that program, I kept saying to myself, where are the Neanderthals in this? Because I think the Neanderthals were <laughs> capable of a lot more than some of us give them credit for, but I didn't hear anything mentioned of them. Well, you watch back, because it's a split second. I say when they ex excavated Stardle Cave, one of the weird things, do you remember when I say there was two skulls of an adult couple and a baby that seemed to be kind of just displayed? There's also the only Neanderthal bone ever found in that part of Germany found in that cave with the lion man. And it's a single bone, a leg bone how and why that bone is in there, why is it isolated, what can possess them to sort of put it into this space, are they aware that the bone is of a Neanderthal and, that, and that's why they put it in this sort of inner chamber, this sacred section of the, of the cave. It is a huge issue and something we were coming up against all the way through making of Lion Man is that we're talking Homo sapiens, we're talking the spread, along the Swabian Jura, along those rivers, the Alm, um, and, and actually it is so isolated. And when I talked to Jill Cook, the curator of prehistory at BM, she says, you know, we are talking minute communities, communities of 10, 12, 15 people spread out, scattered. They are by no means established. They are, they're moving, they're nomadic, they're, they're endangered. Um, a single in, in 
disease or an animal could kill off the whole group. So they're living this hugely fragile and, t and very dangerous life as a tiny, tiny minority species in this area. But then the Neanderthals were clearly in, in the areas all around, just not in the Swabian Jura. And it is a very, very interesting problem. And one of the things that I find difficult, I think you're absolutely right, I think Neanderthal had creative potential that we haven't really understood yet. But what Homo sapiens have done in that short window is, in my feeling, it's almost like they're identifying themselves as different, a different species. They can make music, they can make art, and they, so they will in that moment. Um, it's a really problematic, and the timing and the dating is still being worked out. Even when I was out there filming, Lion Man was pushed back again, dating-wise. And it's all so inexact. Um, we're dealing with archaeological strata that may give or take a couple of thousand years either way. So it's, it's constantly shifting. But there will be more, there will be more. And the thing that came out at the end of that program was the archaeologist, uh, Nicholas Conard, saying, I can't wait to find out what else we're going to discover because we're going to push this back and back and back and we're going to find more. And when archaeology ceases to be about people in holes digging, becomes about x-rays and satellite imagery, we will be able to unpack so much more again. Um, but it is a real problem that we're still trying to unpack. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. <laughs> 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.